You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. So this is the word of the Lord. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name, upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herbs, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is breathed out by you, Father. We pray that you would teach us, instruct us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness through the teaching of your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, be with Jeremy as he comes and presents your word, Father, that you would speak to us through him, and that we would uh, be changed and would live lives more focused on you and your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. What does faith after failure look like in your life? What does faith after failure look like in your life? I don't know if you're like me, but there are times in my spiritual life where if it was on video, you could submit it to some America's funniest videos, epic fail log, because it's just so incredibly devastating. AFV, funny to watch these people make fools of themselves. My personal failures, no joking matter, perhaps, and I would guess... Neither are yours. And how discouraging and disappointing is it for those of us who call ourselves Christians, 
who try to read the Bible, apply scripture, believe the gospel, share Jesus. How disappointing is it when, when we fail in such epic ways? It's, it's embarrassing. How are we supposed to respond when we have failed God miserably? Is there any hope? Is it presumptuous of us to think that maybe God would still want to do something with us after we've messed up so bad? Turns out there's this incredible failure story in the book of Numbers. And it's after Moses has, by the power of God, led the Israelites out of Egypt, and it's out of that it's after that Red Sea rescue that was so incredible when God split the Red Sea and walked them through. And it's after Mount Sinai and giving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, led by Moses, they are on the verge of getting into the promised land, the, the, the very promised land that God had promised to Abram in Genesis 12. One of the most important promises in the book of Genesis, one of the most important promises in all the Bible. Now, here the Israelites are. 430 years later, they are right on the edge of the promised land, and they're going to go in and conquer, receive what God had told Abram his offspring would get. And so they send 12 spies out, Numbers 13 and 14, 10 spies come back and say, we ain't going to conquer that land. This is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. They have giants in there. And true story, they really did have giants in the promised land. That's kind of cool. Like Goliath wasn't a joke. They had a whole race of Goliaths. And, and, and they said, they, they're going to crush us like a grasshopper. That's 10 of them. Two of them said, let's go, baby. We're going to do this. But the, the, the 10, the 10 convinced the million strong or more Israelites to not go. And it's this epic fail for the Israelites, as they disbelieve the promises of God and decide, no, we're not going to go. And God's like, all right, then I'm going to, tells Moses, I'm going to take them all out. I'm gonna, I guess I just got to start again with you or something like that. I'm just going to take them out. And Moses says, no, please don't take them out. Okay, well, then they're, they're going to be punished. The consequence is they're going to wander in the wilderness till all of these people who, when they sat on the verge of the promised land, did not believe me. I'm going to wait till they all die out. Then we'll try it again with Joshua. Moses delivers the news and, and the Israelites, after this epic fail, you know what they do? Instead of repenting of their sin, trusting in Jesus, they, they stack another epic fail on top of the first one. This is what they do. Uh, uh-oh, we didn't believe God's promises, so how about we just go back to plan A and we'll actually, let's go. Let's go into the promised land and fight those giants and we'll take them. To which Moses says, no! Like, you had no chance unless God was going to fight on your behalf, and now God's going to punish you. He is not going to fight on your behalf, so the dumbest thing you can go is go, well, we'll go fight them. Because they're going to kill you. They will crush you. And if you know the story, that's what happens. <laughs> and they get demolished. And, and this next 40 years, as Moses is writing... Most likely Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Israelites are trying to get their mind around what to do 
following this great failure. But this picture is, is, is hard for us, right? Because if you've experienced some sort of spiritual failure that, that just feels especially momentous, you can have this spiritual fog that, that makes you think, on the one hand, maybe I'll just keep sinning because who cares now? Or, or on the other hand, it makes you think, maybe I should do some penance for this. As if there's anything we could ever do with our actions to atone for our sin. Both are wrong responses, but what do you do after failure? In our text today, we see Abram responding after failure. If you remember from last week, he went down to Egypt with his wife, told her to lie, she gets put into Pharaoh's house. It's like a harem or pretending like Pharaoh's married to her. And then Pharaoh finds out and he's mad at Abram. And, and, and Abram has an epic spiritual fail. And so what is Abram going to do now in response? This morning in the text, we see these three movements, faith after failure, Faith in relational conflict, then faith in God's promises. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Genesis chapter 13? Because I want to walk you through this text. I want to show you what this text is saying, and so you can trust both. I didn't just come up with a couple little headers, but actually this is what the Scripture's doing, and I want to take it, I want to apply it to us today. That's what we're going to do in our sermon with these three movements. So jump in with me to faith after failure, and I draw this from verses 1 to 4. As we jump in, remember that in this whole Egypt episode, Abram ended up coming out very wealthy. His net worth when he left the promised land and went to Egypt is now considerably higher because of all that Pharaoh gave him. You can see that in Genesis 12. 16. So we're not surprised in chapter 13, verse 2, our text today, to read that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. But if you've got a Bible in front of you, um, would you circle the word rich? Or if you're looking at the little handout and you've got the text on one side, would you circle the word rich there? Because as I was studying, I came to find out that the word rich in the original language is the identical word that is interpreted severe in chapter 12.10. So if you've got your own Bible in front of you, at least mine's on the same page. Circle rich, and then on chapter 12.10, circle severe. If you're just taking notes, write severe in with 12.10 as a reference on your little handout. Because what I want you to understand is our author is using the same word in both of these episodes, and he's using this same word to help us as readers realize they're connected. And in the English language, we don't see them as an identical word, so we wouldn't necessarily pick up on this note, which is our author's way of saying, hey, I want you to keep both of these stories in mind at the same time. See, following Abram's selfishness and self-centeredness back in Egypt, now we are going to see Abram's faith. Chapter 13, 3, and Abram journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. 
I think this is a sweet picture for us to consider following Abram's epic fail in Egypt. I imagine him hands in his pocket, tail between his legs, leaving. His wife doesn't even have to use the word. She just gives him that look. Husbands, you know what I mean? It's that look that goes, I know, I know. You don't have to say nothing. And he's on his way. He's like, where am I going to go? I don't know. I guess I'll just go back to where I started with God. I'm going to go back to that first place altar. This, this promised land place, I guess that's where I'm going to go. I think it's a powerful picture for us that, that Abram's going back to where he worshiped God. It's an altar. And he calls on the name of the Lord. And for the Israelites then, remember, it's the Israelites following this epic fail in Numbers 13 and 14 as they're hanging out in the wilderness wondering, well, what's up for us now? I think this is a sweet picture for the original audience because it shows them, look, Abram's going back to worshiping God. Maybe we can go back to the altar too. But undoubtedly in our text, Abram is at a crossroads. He's at a crossroads. Which way is he going to go? Is he going to go the way of Christ? Or he doesn't have Christ in his mind. Is he going to go the way of faithfulness and belief in God's promises? Or is Abram going to go the way of the world? He's at a crossroads. And again, what was interesting to me is, check this out. The two cities, Abram's between Bethel and Ai, they sound just like proper nouns to us, but in the original language, they had meaning. Bethel is a spiritual house of God. It denotes a city that would be called like, like if you called a modern city a uh, church, and then you contrasted that with like Vegas. Which city is Abram going to live in? He's going to live in the church city or the Vegas city? You'd go, oh, yeah, so there's this meaning underneath these cities that paint the idea of a crossroads. Which way will Abram go? The way of God or the way of the world? This is what's before him following his epic fail in Egypt. But let's pause here to consider a couple questions for us today. For some of you, you're sitting in here, and whether there was an epic fail this last week, last night, 10 minutes before worship service, I've been there. We've been there. And the question for you is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do after an epic spiritual fail? I mean, practically, I hope you've learned from your experience. Practically, I hope you've repented before God and whoever else you might have failed. I, I hope there's someone in your life you can share your secrets to and they can apply the gospel to you. Now, let us realize none of us in here, myself included, are immune to spiritual failures. All of us. And all of us need help walking with Jesus. What are you going to do following an epic fail? Certainly for the Israelites in the wilderness, they could have easily identified with Abram in Genesis 13, and they would have been encouraged. Look, Abram's back at an altar, and he's worshiping the Lord. Is there any hope for God's people who fail God? Look at Abram, he worships. A second question, some of you in here, you might be at a spiritual crossroads. You might be at a spiritual crossroads. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. It seems to me that in this day and age, at some point, 
in, in this journey, you have to decide, what are you going to do with God? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with God's word? For all of us, we have to make a decision. What are we going to do? And, and, and for you, whether you're middle school, the young adult age, or, or just any of us, if you're at a spiritual crossroads, you have a crucial decision in front of you. How will you respond? I get it. You may not literally be living between Bethel and AI. You may not be between a city that's called the church or a city that's called Vegas. But you're going to have to decide, and you can only go one of two ways. You go God's way or you go the world's way. And, and if you're thinking to yourself, no, 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 bro. Look, man, I show up on Sunday and I do my Jesus stuff. And I, I'm serious Sunday morning when I'm here. But, yeah, I kind of tamper over here a little bit during the week as well. Kind of do a little bit of this. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm telling you, you can't do both. You can't serve two masters. And if you're at a spiritual crossroads, you've, you've got to decide, will you be sold out to Jesus? And, and if, you're a, if you're in here and, and you come here because your parents do, I'm so glad you're here. But at judgment, your parents' faith won't count for you. You've got to know that. That, that, that at judgment, you don't just get to say, well, you know, mom and dad loved you and they, they, they were all in with you. Every one of us answers for ourselves. For those who have experienced spiritual failure, what, what will you do? For those at a spiritual crossroads, what will you do? Both of them point to this third question, will you live with faith in God? See, that was the question for Abram. Are you going to live? Is your behavior actually going to reflect your belief that you have faith in God? That was the question for Abram, and that was the question for the, for the Israelites. Y'all say you believe, but is it going to actually change the way you behave? Will you live with faith in God? As we look at this story, we're encouraged. Okay, I'm encouraged Abram's worshiping at an altar, but what happens when conflict raises its ugly head? What happens when when it gets a little tricky, move with me to the second big idea, faith in strife. I draw this from verses 5 to 13. Turns out, Abram's not the only rich guy in the family. He came out of Egypt, his network went, skyrocketed. And in verses 5 to 7, we find that Abram's younger nephew, Lot, he's got a lot of flocks too. Turns out, you got a lot of flocks, you need a lot of grassland. You need a little out of water. And there, there was a bunch of strife as all of these things are multiplying because there's not enough land. Turns out, mo' money, mo' problems is biblical. Actually, to be more to the point, more flocks and herds, more problems, but that doesn't quite have the hook that you have with more money. Look at Abram's response to this strife. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me, Lot. If you take the left, I'll take the right. If you take the right, then I'll take the left. Now, to understand what's happening here, we have to keep in mind that, that our author is wanting us to contrast this with Abram's response in Egypt. Remember how Abram acted when he was back in Egypt. Back in Egypt, Abram's thinking, I'm going to look out for number one, and that's me, baby. 
I don't care what happens to my wife. I don't care what happens to anybody else. I don't care if I lie to, to Pharaoh, this powerful man. I'm just looking out for number one. In Egypt, Abram's self-centered. Here, we see Abram being very generous. Here, Abram's given the best away. See, Abram's older. He's the uncle. And, and culturally, no one would have questioned him taking seniority. All right, wherever he wants to sit on the bus, seniors get to pick wherever they want to sit on the bus. They get to pick the best jerseys, not freshmen. But here, here Abram's going, no deception, no trickery. Lot, you take the best. Whatever you want, I'll go the other way. And in so doing, this is Abram demonstrating faith in God. See, God has said, I'm going to give you this promised land. And Abram goes, okay, but I'm not going to be self-centered and be a control freak and try to grab it for myself. I'm going to have my hands open. If you know the story of Abram, you know that in Genesis 22, he is going to take his one and only son between him and his wife, and he is going to be willing to sacrifice this promised son on a mountain. And I heard it said that just as Abram is willing to sacrifice his promised son later in the text here in our text, Abram is willing to sacrifice the promised land and entrust it to God. I think it's faith. So look how Lot responds. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the Zor. Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you heard that verse and made zero connections to the Garden of Eden, that's okay. I didn't either, but on Study, I found out that there's so many connections to the Garden of Eden in this verse, not least of which is Moses writing, it was like the Garden of the Lord. That's Garden of Eden. Uh, turns out in my study, Eve, the, the words that, that are used in Genesis 3 when Eve looks up and sees the tree that is forbidden... When she looks up and sees the forbidden tree and the forbidden fruit and then goes, mm -mm -mm, that looks fine. Those same words are the same words that are happening right here with Lot. Lot, he looks up to the Jordan Valley and he goes, mm -mm -mm, that looks fine. And, and, and our author wants us to know red alert because Lot looks up and it goes, mm, that's like the Garden of Eden. No, Garden of Eden's forbidden now. And then it says, look what else it says. It's like the Garden of Eden. It is like Egypt. Remember the original audience? They had just come out of where? Egypt. Egypt looks good. It ain't a very good place to live. Ask the Israelites for 430 years. No. Lot is looking and seeing what is outside of God's promise to the forbidden Land. And if those reasons aren't enough for the original readers to realize, uh-oh, this isn't a good direction, we get this parenthetical note right there at the end. This is before God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that are there in the Jordan Valley. <laughs> Lot, no, 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 no. Lot is living by sight, not by faith. But look what happens, 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east 
east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. For, for anyone who was confused whether the heart of verse 10 was that Lot was going to a dangerous place, two more references. The first explicit one, verse 13, a warning. Verse 13, a foreshadowing of what's going to come. Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. But also there's this point about east. Because in the book of Genesis, when any, whenever someone travels east, it's symbolic for distance and exile from God's presence. That's a money line. I wish I wrote it. I didn't. I got that in a commentary. When you travel east, it's symbolic for distance and exile from divine presence. Here's how another commentary puts it. Thus, it becomes clear that by moving to the vicinity of the cities of the plain, Lot has gone outside the land of Canaan, leaving it entirely to Abram. And it's in also important to notice the recurrence of toward the east in verse 11. Every movement away from God thus far in Genesis has been designated as toward the east. Chapter 324, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, where do they go? East, away from God. Or in chapter 4, who goes east after he kills Abel? It's Cain. Or chapter 11, who's east? That's city of Babel. It becomes the Tower of Babel, a rejection of God. East. East is dangerous. But here's Abram in the promised land, living by faith. Faith in the face of strife. Let's stop again to consider a few questions for ourselves. For any of us today who are facing relational conflict. Man, it's hard, right? Relational conflict's hard, but if you're facing relational conflict, we keep in mind as Christians today that because God came and made peace with us, we, as a response to him making peace with us through Jesus Christ, are to live at peace with others. God took the initiative to make peace with us, and so we want to live with peace as with others, and so far, so far as it is up to us, let us seek to make peace, not so different than the example of Abram in the, in the text. He doesn't ignore the conflict. He doesn't put his head in the sand, hope it goes away. He's not passive. He just says, look, here's the facts. we got to do something about this. For those facing relational conflict, will you seek peace with others, or will you ignore the conflict? We did a whole sermon series on this. You can hit the podcast if you want as we walk through Matthew 18. Christians, we are, so far as it is up to us, Romans 12, 18, to live at peace with everyone. Seek peace with others. Question two, some of us are going to have opportunities to be generous like Abram. And we face these moments when, when we can be very generous or very greedy. As Christians, we remember that, that God has been so generous to us, giving us Jesus Christ, and that changes our hearts so that we want to be generous with others. I don't know the opportunities that you are going to face, but when, 
the opportunity between generosity or being greedy comes up, we as Christians should give the best away. Amen? I know it's hard to live by faith. Let's be honest. Living by sight, it is so much easier. It's so much easier to be like Lot and to think that all that glitters is gold. But we're only a handful of chapters into Genesis, aren't we? And we've learned that all that glitters is not gold. So what will you do? Be generous or greedy? Ultimately, both of these questions, again, point to the granddaddy question, which is, will we live with faith in God? When push comes to shove, will we live with faith in God? That's what Abram's wrestling with. That's what the original audience, the Israelites in the wilderness were wrestling with. And it's what we wrestle with today. Will we really live with faith? Faith after spiritual failure. Faith when we're facing relational conflict. Move with me to the third big idea. Faith in God's promises from verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring, Abram, as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. I'm just imagining that this promise in Genesis 13 is, is so encouraging to Abram. <laughs> Despite your epic failure, bro, I am going to keep my promise to you. Oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Even when we fail epically, you're, you're showing that you're going to keep your promise to Abram, and, and mind you that there was a land promise God had given Abram previously, but the previous land promise was some of the land. Look in the text. Look in the text, because this, this promise has expanded. God doesn't say, I'm going to give you some of the land. What does God say? I'm going to give you all the land. All right. I go off, I have epic fail, and you give me more promise. Previously, the promise had been, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars in the sky. Here, he says, your offspring is going to be like the dust of the earth. Like, if you were trying to give an illustration to Abram, whatever, 2000 BC, what illustration would be more expansive than, if you could count every piece of dust in the earth, that's how many kids you're going to have. It's mind-blowing. Verse 17, God invites Abram to take the land, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. In the study, I learned that Abraham's walking about the land symbolizes his legal acquisition of it. In olden days, kings who were given land, they'd, they'd, they'd trace the boundaries, they would walk all the way around it, symbolically showing they now possess it. God's like, take the land. So Abram's walking around it, I guess. That's my land. That's my land. God going to give that land to me. Having lived following this epic fail between Bethel and Ai, which way is Abram going to go? Look how the section finishes, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent 
and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. If you didn't brush up on your Old Testament geography, Abram has settled in the heart of the promised land. He has built a new altar. Watke puts it this way. Spiritually, Abram is now, he's back at an altar in the heart of the promised land. This is a picture of believing God's promises. That's what Abram's doing. But consider, have any of the promises of offspring or land been fulfilled yet? Abram still doesn't have a child with him and Sarai. He's still waiting on that one. And yet he's got an altar. He's worshiping the Lord. And as far as the land goes, like he's living in the right plot of ground. But look back at chapter 13, verse 7. I skipped over this. Notice who else is dwelling in the land. Do you see the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land? Meaning the land promise has not been fulfilled either. What I'm wanting you to notice is Abram's living by faith even though neither promise is actually happening at all. In fact, some would say he's an idiot because he's worshiping the Lord even though nothing happened. Here's Abram walking around like a king, tracing his land. He comes on the Canaanites, and it's like, y'all in my land. Well, I ain't going to do nothing. You're like squatters right now. I'm just going to let you go because God's going to give me this promise. He, he walks upon the Parasites. Same thing. He's like, y'all in my, this is mine. I'd like to see you do something about it. Abram goes, no, I'll just let God. Just, but it is my land. For the original Israelites then, they're waiting for 40 years in the wilderness, and they probably come upon Genesis 13 thinking to themselves, is God going to keep his promise to Abram? Because Abram doesn't have no kids. Abram doesn't have the land yet. Is God going to keep his promise to Abram? Because, Because really what we're wondering is, will God keep his promise to us as Israelites? Is he faithful? They're in the wilderness. Chances are, Despite their epic fail in Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites, had you said, well, do you believe God's going to keep his promise that Abram's offspring will be like the dust of the ground? My guess is they would look around and go, well, we're not quite dust of the ground yet because they're somewhere in the million strong at this point. So we're not dust of the ground. We're not numerous to that amount, but like we're on our way. So we got some people. But, but had you asked them, What promises are you awaiting? The Israelites would have said, well, there's two promises from Genesis 12 that as we wait in the wilderness, we still don't have any idea about. One is from Genesis 12 when when God said that he would bless all the world through the nation of Israel. Some of the Israelites in the wilderness would have been like scratching their head going, I don't know how God's blessing all tongues, tribes, and nations through our people. I have no idea. And the Israelites would have been going, and we don't know about the land thing either because neither of those promises have been fulfilled. What should the Israelites have understood then about these promises that God has made from Genesis 12? I'm going to give you all this offspring. I'm going to bless all the world through your people groups, Israel, and I'm going to give you this land. How should they have thought through those promises? Because they hadn't occurred yet. Abram didn't see them. The Israelites didn't see them. If you kept reading Through the Bible, you'd come to the New Testament, to the most important character in all the Bible. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And it is in Jesus Christ that these three promises are fulfilled. In Jesus, you get the offspring promise, you get the blessing of the world promise, and you get the land promise. If you didn't know how Jesus fulfills this text, it's like this. For those who believe in Jesus, Romans chapter 9, verse 8, we preached through it not so long ago, teaches that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are counted as a child of the promise. You are a child of Abraham if you believe in Jesus, which means that this promise in Genesis 13 that his offspring are going to be like the dust of the earth, that's not just talking about people with a little bit of Israelite DNA in their system. That means anybody who believes in Jesus is now part of God's family. If right now we took every person who's ever professed faith in Jesus Christ and we just put them out in a space, we lined them all up, however big, however geographically large that area would be, I trust it would be like dusts of the world. Too much to count. That's how Jesus fulfills the offspring promise. We get counted as part of Abraham's family through him. What is more, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the blessing to all nations promise. See, when Jesus came, he lived, died on the cross, put in a tomb. Three days later, he's resurrected. He, he told his disciples after his resurrection, now go tell all peoples about me. Because all are welcome. The message of the gospel is not just for Israelites. It's for every tongue, tribe, and nation. So he tells the disciples in Acts 1.8, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to go to Judea. I want you to go to Samaria. And I want you to go to the ends of the earth and let every person know they can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. How does the entire world get blessed Genesis 12, 1 to 3, through Jesus and the message that all can be welcomed into the family of God. Jesus fulfills the offspring promise. He fulfills the blessing promise. But what in the world about this land promise? In case you didn't know, Abram, he lives and dies and he never sees the promise completely fulfilled. If you know the Bible storyline, Joshua, he ends up taking the Israelites into the promised land where the Israelites had failed previously. Joshua goes and they conquer some of the promised land, but they don't get it all either. Did you know that? Joshua, he didn't land the plane on that promise. You fast forward, you come to King David, King Solomon. The land promise never gets fulfilled with them either. Fast forward to today. The land promise has still not been totally fulfilled. You would be right to go, when is that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you when. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Land promise is coming, baby. And God cares about land. And one day... For those who are in Christ, we will live with him and enjoy him forever in the land. Amen? 
two final questions to consider before we shut this down. First, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're thinking, I'm not part of Abraham's, Abram's offspring. I'm not part of this blessing that Jesus gives to every tongue, tribe, and nation. I'm not going to inherit this land. How may I become part of the people of God? How does a person become and enter into the blessings that are promised in this section? The gospel connection is the altar. In our text, the gospel connection is the altar. We start with an altar up here at the top of the text. We end with Abram in a different part of the promised land, worshiping at the altar. And what we find is while Moses doesn't explain completely or even a little bit what's going on with altar in Genesis 13, the original audience, the Israelites, they were steeped in a sacrificial system. And if you got to Leviticus, you'd get your, you'd get your appetite filled for the sacrificial system and how much blood and throwing and earlobes and fat and all that goes into the sacrificial system. They would have understood it originally. See, what you have to understand that the original audience would have taken for granted is this. An altar is a spiritual place of worship. That's what an altar is. I go to this place to worship. And there has to be blood because there is so much sin in the life of the priest who's doing the sacrifice as well as the people on behalf of who the sacrifice is being made. There's all this blood that had to be spilled over and over and over again. And you needed lambs and you needed goats and you needed bulls. And there was just never enough blood. There's no way to actually atone for all of the sins. So this spiritual place of worship that we see in our text is still required for us today. You and I still need an altar. When y'all do that, is that like a Saturday afternoon thing out back? Like, when do you guys get all those animals to slit their throats? So, so it turns out we don't have PETA out here uh, picketing us and telling us we're evil people because we don't have to do this anymore. But, but the reason we don't kill animals today is not because blood isn't still necessary. No, blood is still necessary. And if we're going to have access and become people of God, we need blood at an altar. See, when Jesus Christ came, he lived perfect, and then he was put on an altar, and his blood was spilled at the ultimate altar, the cross. And because of the cross, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sins of the world, the reason we don't have to keep sacrificing animals is because Jesus' blood was enough. He is the once and for all ultimate sacrifice at the ultimate altar. It is finished. But you need that blood to become part of the people of God. And you get it by asking Jesus Christ to atone for your sins. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you're here, you're not in the people of God. It's very simple. You say, Lord, would you please take the sacrifice of Jesus at that altar, the cross, would you apply it to me? I'm sorry for my sin. I want to trust in you, Christ. Those are for you who are not Christians. For those of you who are Christians, I hope you've seen how Abram worshipped God at this altar despite his epic fail in Genesis 12, despite the relational conflict he found himself in the midst of, and despite seeing all of these promises left unfulfilled, he's still worshipping God. That's what Abram's 
wrestling through. It's what the Israelites would have been wrestling through. Are we going to believe God even though these promises have yet to be materialized? And that's identical for you and I. You and I are waiting for all these promises of God to be materialized. And we're in the middle and it's hard and it's difficult. So the final question for application for you, the question this entire sermon is aiming towards, the the sermon in a question, if you will, is this. Will you live with faith in God? Living with faith in God means that if you fail, you still will have faith in God. Living with faith in God means when you're going through relational conflict, you won't take the low road. You'll take the high road and you'll forgive. Living with faith in God means that as you wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, you will trust in him. This is hard, Christian. Remember the message of Genesis. God keeps his promises. He's going to keep his promises. Now may the Spirit give us grace to live with faith in Him. Will you pray with me? If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.